Hello and welcome to the Oak Hill College Deep Roots podcast, conversations about theology and ministry. Uh, I'm Matthew Bingham. I teach church history and systematic theology here at Oak Hill College. I am joined today by my colleague, Eric Ortland, who teaches Old Testament here at the college. And we also have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Eric, who are we with today? Absolutely. Uh, you, everyone watching might see some resemblance with uh, the man sitting to my left. We are joined by my father today, Ray Ortland who's uh, been an Old Testament scholar and a pastor for many, many years and is going to bring his expertise uh, for us today. So, Dad, thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege. Thank you for having me. B- may I tell one joke before we, we begin? This is not going to be jokes all the way, but when, when, when my father uh, retired retired from ministry at fr- from his church, uh, we had a celebration to, uh, you know, express uh, all of our love and appreciation for you. I said a little bit, all the kids said something, and most people did not know me. And I stood up and said, hi, everyone, my name's Eric. I'm Ray Ortland's son. And then I said, no, I know that I look older than Ray, but I am actually his son. So for those of you watching at home, if you're curious, th- this man actually is older than me, uh, uh, even though it doesn't look that way. So on that awkward note, Dad, could you just uh, say a little bit about where you live and what you've been doing for the past couple of years for those people watching at home. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Uh, My dear wife, Janie, and I live in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And uh, this past December, we celebrated our 51st wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, we're very grateful to God. Um, I am a pastor, and uh, I have the privilege of serving now through Emanuel Church as a pastor to pastors, and uh, and also with Renewal Ministries. Mm-hmm. And uh, RM enables us to travel the world and care for people, encourage them, speak, teach, preach, and so forth. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, Dad, would it be fair, I'm going to put you on the spot slightly okay. here, in a way that's <laughs> slightly awkward, but given comments that you and Mom have made, you mentioned being a pastor to pastors. Would you say it's fair to say that God, at this stage of your life, has uh, given you the opportunity to be kind of a father figure mm. to young pastors yeah. in the U.S. Is that this is? Am- I think uh, I, I cannot deny that, and it's very um, moving to me, wondrous to me. Yeah. I feel so privileged to uh, care for younger pastors, to believe in them, affirm them, notice them, um, encourage them. Yeah, it's a it's a sacred privilege. Yeah. Yeah, the ministry of encouragement. Yes. Yeah. Paul said to Philemon, um, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon 7. That is a powerful, I believe, underappreciated ministry. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That is a high commendation for, for any Christian. And uh, your mom and I deeply desire that ministry. Yeah. I remember you saying to me once, have you or asking me, have you ever met someone who was over encouraged, <laughs> who didn't need any more encouragement? Yeah. And I, I haven't. So to begin this conversation, let me ask you, uh, you've been in ministry for several decades. Can I ask you a two part question? Sure. First of all, what was clear and important and urgent to you when you began ministry, which is still every bit as clear and important and urgent? And what are one or two things that are now clear and urgent and important to you yeah. that you either 
undervalued or just weren't aware of that, when you thank began? Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, what remains captivating and urgent as it was uh, in the 1970s is the ministry of the word. Expositional preaching and teaching. Eric, I remember in September of 1972, just over 50 years ago, I was mm -hmm. sitting in a class in seminary, and at Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, it was uh, the first course after beginning Greek, and we were learning basic Greek exegesis. We had our United Bible Societies, Greek New Testaments out in front of us. He was teaching us how to use the text apparatus at the bottom of the page, the unseals, the minuscules, the papyri, and so forth. It couldn't have been more academic. <laughs> and suddenly, without warning, I didn't see it coming. I didn't have time to duck. And it was the kind of thing, and at the time, I really didn't believe it. But right there in the class, how do I say this? An awareness came upon me. I knew it was from above. A clear and distinct first-order experience of divinely given awareness and two thoughts entered my mind that I knew were of God. One, oh, this is what I was born for. Two, I'm going to be a serious student of the Bible for the rest of my life. And it passed. But that marked me. And Professor Johnston, Johnson, 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 who I've never heard of except for this story. He had no idea that happened. It was a normal Absolutely day in class no, for him. No one else had any idea. And uh, in God's goodness, it was a hugely significant day for you. It was a turning point. Talking about, not many students say, oh, I can't wait to learn about New Testament textual <laughs> criticism. But that was a hugely significant moment for you. It was a turning point in my life. And I thank the Lord for it. It was a, a vivid sense of call. I already had a call for, to ministry. But then I had a call to biblical ministry with a clarity I didn't even know was possible. And in God's mercy, I walked in that call. I have many regrets, Eric, but the time I have given to serious study of the Bible, I do not regret. I thank the Lord for it. What a privilege. How many, what percentage of Christians over the last 2,000 years have been given the privilege of studying the Bible at the level of the original text. I do not take this for granted. I, I, I really thank the Lord for it. I just want to keep going. Yeah. Now, that has not changed. I still have that sense of, of gracious privilege. Here's, here's something I was completely oblivious to at the time that means so much to me now. I've come to realize, and it became clear gradually but over about 15 years ago, I had another turning point in life that was more of the nature of pain than wonder. Yeah. Um, and I came to realize that I came to realize with new vividness that, that the doctrine of Scripture, the, the teachings of Scripture, the theology of Scripture, that gospel doctrine must not hang in midair as a naked abstraction an item of orthodoxy, a box to check to prove that we're legitimate. But that doctrine is there. 
not only to lift up and exalt Christ in a general sense, which we always want to do, mm. but in particular, that doctrine creates a certain kind of community. It, it, to use a, <laughs> an unworthy word, well, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. That's how I try to summarize it. But it, it creates a kind of magic among the people of God. So, so Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's, let's consider that category for a moment. Christ in Ray, the hope of glory. Christ in Matthew, the hope of glory. Christ in Eric, the hope of glory. Christ appears in each of us individually. That is glorious, and the glory is gaining ground, becoming even more clear. All right, but that, and that's wonderful. Something even more amazing is happening here. Not only Christ in Matthew, Christ in me, but, but Christ in the space between us. Hmm. Christ in the relational energy and dynamics between us. Christ is invisible in Matthew. Christ is invisible in Ray, is visible in Ray. And Christ is, I believe, even more greatly visible or deserves to be hmm. in the space between us. Hmm. The relational dynamics that we receive from the gospel, that we protect, that we nurture, that we rejoice in. For example, Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another, gospel culture, as Christ has welcomed you, gospel doctrine, for the glory of God. So, where can the glory of God be seen in the world today? Well, we could fly over to Switzerland and hike the Alps, and we could see the glory of God. We could fly to America and, and, and hike the Grand Canyon. We would see the glory of God. Or we can drive down to church on Sunday morning a church that understands the gospel at the level of doctrine and culture and just watch what's happening between the people. And we would see the glory of God. So Christ has welcomed you. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Paul, of course, is summarizing, getting around to kind of summing things up at the yeah. end of Romans. Christ has welcomed you is the gospel in four words. It does not say Christ tolerates you. He does not roll his eyes. He does not put up with you. He welcomes you. Come on into my heart. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So that is the end of aloofness. That is the end of being excessively shy and self-preoccupied, and I don't want to stick my neck out emotionally and relationally. No, no, no. And it doesn't say, say hi to one another. That's a good thing to do, but it doesn't work. Say hi to one another on the way from the parking lot into the sanctuary on Sunday morning, as Christ has said hi to you. <laughs> it doesn't work. No, come on in here, get into my life. I welcome you into my life. Where on in this world is that happening? Wherever that's happening in Christ, the glory of God is seen. And that was not clear to you the way it is now when you began. Oh my goodness, no. Yeah. Uh, I knew it was important to be personable, yeah. courteous, yeah. cheerful, and so forth. I did not understand 
actually, Eric, the very thing I saw in your grandfather, my yeah. dad, yeah. he really got this yes. intuitively. Yeah. He treated people as if they were royalty because he knew they are. Yeah. Yeah. And what I saw in my dad, I finally understood more principially yeah. and pastorally. Yeah. Now, all I want to do is preach and teach gospel doctrine in such a way that gospel culture comes alive. And what Francis Schaeffer called the beauty of human relationships appears. Yeah. I feel profound urgency about that that I was completely oblivious to uh, years ago. Yeah. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Yes. So if we're thinking about that, I'm, I'm a pastor in a local church, I'm a, I'm a leader in, in a local church in some context. Is it the case that, you know, I think of, um, you know, Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and your, and your doctrine. Um, is it just the case that I need to make sure my doctrine is sound, that it's biblical, and then I need to be teaching and communicating that clearly, and gospel culture will then sort of work itself out? Or are there, mm. are there other things that I need to be thinking about and checking in my own heart and my own life, my own ministry, um, that might impede that, even if my doctrinal uh, ducks are lined up, as it were? Mm. That's a very important question. Well, I believe that if we're preaching Christ crucified, Preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? Good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Justification by faith alone. Let's never stop. Let's get that message into every worship service in some way, shape, or form. So I believe if we are preaching that message sincerely from the heart in the power of the Holy Spirit, lots of great things are going to happen beyond our own immediate intentions. But preaching clarifies doctrine. It's pastoring that nurtures culture. So one-on-one -on -one conversations, visits, having people over for dinner, small group interactions, vestry meetings, elders meetings, and so forth. And also the Sunday morning ministry, not only as preaching, but as pastoring. Leading a worship service is a pastoral experience. The pastor is, 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 is wrapping his arms around that precious congregation and rejoicing. Here we have Christ together. And he creates this awareness that we together as a body share the treasures of Christ. He just nurtures that. He's not just preaching to individuals, but building and encouraging a, a group awareness a rejoicing in Christ, a rejoicing in one another. So preaching clarifies doctrine, but it's pastoring that, that must be dialed in and must be pursued diligently, wisely, lovingly, faithfully, uh, ruggedly over the years that nurtures culture. And it takes time. Preaching, as you and I both know, preaching the gospel will is not easy. But pastoring people into gospel culture is, I believe, even more difficult because it entails nuances, intangibles, vibe, feel, <laughs> and so forth. Those, uh, that's what culture is made of. And, um, and it's our privilege as pastors to think about that, consider that, pray about that, discuss that with leaders, and begin to become 
rejoicingly intentional about it. Mm. Now, Dad, let me ask you something. Everyone going into pastoral ministry has a different set of gifts. No one is is quite like uh, one another. And there will be those who get a great amount of energy from interaction with other human beings and spending long months of time with them. There will be some pastors who will find it easier to retire to their study, read commentaries, read theology, and yes. so on. All those gifts are, are valid and good. Yes. What would you say to someone who is listening to this and saying, well, Ray, okay, I understand we're supposed to love people, but the kind of person I am, I'm not, you know, a deeply social extrovert who just yes. oozes over people. I'm just, yeah. I'm just more of a, a, a quiet, um, relaxed person. What, what would you say to someone who is maybe thinking race describing a certain kind of personality that I don't have? No, that's a great point. Thank you for saying that. I am a huge introvert. <laughs> like being with you guys right now is, this is okay. That's this, what, that's what everyone says who comes on the podcast. It's just <laughs> deeply exhausting. Yes, so. that's right. Um, who of us is truly loving? Who of us was born with the love of Christ in our hearts? Um, if we are going to be faithful to Christ as ministers and pastors, deacons, presbyters, and so forth, we're going to be stretched so far beyond ourselves. Let's never limit what the Lord wants us to become by our own self-defined personality profile. Where is that in the Bible? We will be, <laughs> we'll go places with him. We never dreamed we would go. And we will be exhausted at times. Oh my God. What if we weren't, what if we always held back and played it safe and never allowed ourselves to get into a situation that might get out of hand in terms of my own personal um, capacities? Mm. What if I limited myself to, to my DNA, what I was born with. Excuse me. That is not Christianity. So in speaking of how gospel doctrine creates gospel culture, we're not engaging in a new Galatianism between the super spiritual people who you know love to be around people and those who, who, who don't. The, the, this is what Christianity is for everyone. Well, it, not only are we not uh, creating a new Galatianism, the passage in the New Testament that has been up in my face about this for decades is Galatians 2, 11 through 21, mm. where the Apostle Paul scolds the Apostle Peter. John Stott calls that the most tense and dramatic moment in, in terms of uh, Christian dynamics in the New Testament. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, and what was Paul's objection? How, why was Paul so offended by Peter? No one less than Peter. And he says, even Barnabas. Peter treated the Gentile believers as if they weren't quite good enough. There was a two-tiered body of Christ with kosher Jewish believers riding, uh, sitting in first class with prior boarding and extra leg room, and Gentile believers back in coach are they going to heaven? Yeah, but they're not at our level. And he was denying that was that there was one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body, utterly denying it. And his 
his behavior, therefore, toward the Gentile believers was more than a personal insult, though it was that. Mm. Paul says Peter was denying the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and Paul is saying, you have no right to do that. Wow, that's intense. Now, I very much don't want to dominate this conversation. May I ask one more follow-up question? Yes, of course. What would you say, how would you preach the gospel to a pastor listening right now and thinking, Ray, you're right, and my heart is so dry and cold and dead to the people God has given me. I just don't care. What, um, would you, what does the gospel have to say yeah. to that? Or to a pastor who's been wounded yeah. by the people he's been called to yeah. Yeah. and doesn't want to love them? Wow. How, uh, what does the gospel say to a pastor in that position? That is a great question. And we all find ourselves there, yeah. don't we? I think that's where, in our defeatedness as pastors, yeah. our, our, our failure, our impasse, uh, when we hit rock bottom, we tend to think, oh my goodness, I don't want to go there. That is the worst case scenario. I no longer believe, I understand that feeling. I no longer believe that's the worst case scenario. Because wow. rock bottom is where Christ himself awaits us with open arms. Wow. The greatest things in life happen when we hit rock bottom. Wow. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly, to revive the spirit of the, of the contrite, to revive the heart of the lowly. So where can God be found in this universe? In two places. Way up high where we cannot go, and way down low where we can go. But God cannot be found in the mushy middle where everybody's pretty much kind of sort of okay. <laughs> that is the place to fear. Yeah. Pastoral mediocrity, I'm doing a good job, you know. Better than most. <laughs> Better than the church down the road. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is that's the worst case scenario. Yeah. To be devastated, to fall on our face, to be defeated. How can I even go on? How can I do this one more day? How can I face those people on Sunday? How can I bring them some fresh baked bread that would be delicious to them? How can I do that? That is actually the place of new beginnings. Mm. So if a, any pastor listening to this who honestly finds himself there, dear friend, you are so close to the risen Christ right now. Mm. He is next to you. Second Timothy 4.17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Man, I love that. The risen Lord came as an unseen, felt presence, and the Apostle Paul felt this armor on his shoulder. And he, he had this awareness of uh, the risen Christ there with him saying, hey, you just keep going. I'm proud of you. You're my friend. I'm with you. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord gives that gift to every faithful servant whose heart cracks open and says, Lord, I need you as I've never needed you before. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, that's thinking into the situation you described, 
Eric. I mean, um, the word that we hear a lot about these days is, is burnout. Mm. Uh, I think I saw, I, I read a book recently that described millennials as the, the burnout generation. Mm. You know, wow. And, uh, this is a lot on people's hearts and minds. And um, so there we're talking into the life of someone who might be feeling some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, here at college, Eric and I, we, we spend a lot of time, don't we, around uh, people just starting off on the course, looking towards what they hope will be, what they pray will be, a lifetime of faithful and, and fruitful ministry. Um, if you were talking to um, those either just starting out or, or even in the first decade here as you enter into mm-hmm. uh, look back on multiple decades, um, they're not burnt out, but they see others uh, who have gone before who have felt that way and got to that place, what would be advice you might give to them mm. to say, set up patterns for yeah, long-term longevity and faithfulness in ministry? Well, oh, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, great question. So practical strategies um, that I, I, I think these are obvious, but sometimes they're just not observed. You've got to take a day off. You've got to insist upon that, not just insist upon those with whom you're, you're partnering in ministry, insist upon yourself taking a day off. So your mom and I, when we were in the regular rhythm of pastoral ministry, every Monday was sacred. sacred. That was Janny Day. And if I wanted to slip in ministry on that day, uh, <laughs> your, your mother had ways of communicating. <laughs> and she had every right to. She deserved my attention. And... Being with her was life-giving. I needed to shut off sermon preparation, emails, and so forth. Avoid all that. Go take a walk. Go do something fun. Take a drive. Um, get some exercise. Go, go linger over some really great coffee. Spend some time in the garden. Yes. So a day off. Everybody needs a Sabbath. Secondly... I believe if a a minister tries to plow through this life in isolation, he's already in trouble. James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. All right, now if we don't believe in the Roman Catholic confessional, what do we believe? I mean, how do we obey that? That is a command in Scripture. To whom do we confess our sins on a regular basis? So, um, Sam Alberry and Pastor T.J. Timms in Nashville and I get together and in my study, and the only agenda is to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other that we may be healed. If we have no one that we trust enough and respect enough to have that kind of experience, that kind of transparency. I'm not talking about accountability. Mm. That can be coercive. But transparency is, is uh, reciprocal and shared and gentle. Mm. So living in ongoing transparency with trusted, respected uh, Christian friends and, and walking in James 5.16, confessing our sins, praying for each other, we do experience ongoing healing. So... A day off, having fun, laughter, watching a favorite movie, taking a walk, and living in honest transparency with trusted, respected friends. 
Uh, those two practices, I think, position us for longevity in the rugged demands of pastoral ministry. That m- many thoughts come to mind as I'm listening to you talk. Could I ask, I was uh, uh, talking with a friend some time ago about a sermon we heard uh, from a new preacher. My friend made a comment. Uh, it was not a bad sermon. It really wasn't, but my friend made a comment on it. He said, I was instructed, my heart didn't sing. Mm-hmm. I was in, It was faithful to the text. Mm-hmm. I didn't find myself rejoicing by the end of it. Mm-hmm. I, th- we surely all struggle with that, that yeah. I've done my yes. homework with the exegesis of the text. Yeah. And, I, and I, I've preached sermons like this. I've been on the receiving ends of sermons where I get thin, and I think I agree with everything you said. And I don't really care that much. How? How? And Matthew, if you have thought, you, you you're an experienced preacher as well. If you have thoughts on this as well, I'd love to hear what you have to say. But how how can you help a sermon catch fire, and be more than just the communication of information about the text? What would you say, Matthew? Yeah, I th- I think it's a really interesting one because I think in the thing that I find interesting about ministry and preaching ministry is this way in which uh, it's very easy to sort of coast along. You don't have a boss in the normal sense, especially if you're, I mean, I think my, my background would be as a solo pastor of small church. You don't have a boss in the normal sense looking over your shoulder. It's easy to sort of hide. But then at the same time, for that reason perhaps, um, you also find it very easy to, to uh, chase a sort of perfectionism hmm. and, and feel as though it's oh. never good enough. And everything you're saying I agree with, I want, I want to hear sermons that make my heart sing, and I want to preach sermons that make my heart sing, or other people's hearts. Um, but how do, you, how do you do that? And how do you chase excellence in preaching, in reliance on the Holy Spirit, without falling into a sort of uh, sense of perfectionism and a sense that, you know what, it's all on me. And I think, wow. again, for the solo pastor with a small congregation, you don't have a lot to offer people in a sort of worldly sense. You don't have great array of programs and staff and there is this sense especially in our circles i think where we rightly put weight on expositional ministry i think there's this pressure i know i've felt it where it's you know i'm i'm the main event here Mm -hmm. and if i don't offer them something that's going to make them stay Mm -hmm. well then why would they stay why would they come to my church and how do you how do you live in that tension in a way that's god honoring and uh, but also doesn't sort of let yourself off the hook, as it were. I mean, laziness is a temptation. Perfectionism is a temptation. Yeah. How do you sit in a God-honoring place there? Yeah. That's very insightful. I would not have located perfectionism inside that, that question. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, two thoughts. One, Jonathan Edwards helped me understand what the human heart is. It, it, the heart is the center of the human being. The mind is not. The mind is the sentry, you know, with his musket. And he sees a a datum coming, an idea, an influence, an impulse, and holds up his rifle and says, halt, who goes there, friend or foe? (laughs) And if the mind is satisfied that this datum on its way toward the human being is passable, acceptable, a friend, it opens the gate and that that datum, that idea, that suggestion, whatever it might be, then enters in and goes down into the heart. Now we're getting traction. 
the point of what Edwards helped me see, though, is that if my preaching only addresses the mind, I don't understand the human being. We don't make the hard decisions of life and the joyous decisions of life, the important decisions of life, just because we've satisfied the sentry who's standing there with his musket. Mm. We, we turn corners. We get traction when, when a, a gospel idea comes down and detonates in the heart. So he helped me understand who I am, who everyone is, how we're actually designed to, 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 to be energized. Mm. So that helped me. And then the other thing I, that I've just observed in myself and others is that whenever Jesus crucified and risen again is, this is more hermeneutical and theological, mm. the point, the real point of every passage in the Bible from cover to cover, as we all believe, is Christ crucified and risen again. Uh, remember, Eric, when we lived in Bankery up in Scotland, and remember Skulte, the yes. hill, yes. with the tower on top? Yes, you okay. could see it anywhere in the town. Yeah. yeah, wherever we were in the town, in the valley around, we could always, where's Skulte? And we could always, oh, there it is, and get our bearings. Yeah. That's Christ. As wherever we are in Scripture, we can always look up, see him, and we can see where we are better in relation to him. So it is not artificial or forced to connect any passage in Scripture with Christ crucified and risen again. He himself said, the Scriptures bear witness to me. Now, when we take our preaching there, if the last point turns the corner and points to Christ, and in theological categories, we go into um, doctrines like Union with Christ, substitution, imputation, justification by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from all our works, deservings, merits, identities, everything, and, and so forth. Those Christ-centered doctrines then were lifted above merely coaching people in their sanctification. Hmm. And where our eyes are lifted to him, and we all understand great things start happening at that point at the level of the heart. I did not know that for so many years. Eric, I have preached hundreds of the most wretched sermons imaginable <laughs> because I honestly believed my job was to help Christians be better at living the Christian life. I did not know when Christ is lifted up, all that stuff gets better because the heart becomes engaged. So, Ray, one, one question that is a sort of perennial uh, to put to uh, pastors. Um, books outside of the scriptures that have shaped you, that have uh, played a significant role in helping you to uh, see more of Christ, to think more clearly about what it means to, to be a pastor, to be a Christian. Um, I won't ask you for your favorite book. I think that's hard. But what would be some books that you would say uh, let me put this into the hands oh. of another uh, pastor on yeah. the way. Well, the first uh, one that comes to my mind, actually, it isn't a book. It's in a book. It's, it's a sermon by Francis Schaeffer. The book is entitled uh, No Little People, mm -hmm. published in the mid-1970s 
by InterVarsity. But in that book is a sermon entitled, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And for me, if the scripture is here, just underneath <laughs> is Francis Schaeffer's sermon, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. Um, because he makes clear and compelling the case that doing the Lord's work out of our own wherewithal, just because we're great at it, we're talented, our capacities, our cool, our traditionalism, whatever, just us being great at this, that isn't the Lord's work. So uh, a verse like uh, John six sixty three, the flesh, it, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Schaefer alerted me to the essentiality of doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way if we really are going to do the Lord's work. I can't go through a single day without thinking of that sermon. Mm. Yeah, I really recommend it to, to everyone. So thank you. Dad, thank you so much for this. I'm conscious of uh, the time. Could I close with one final question, if that's okay? And then could I ask you to pray for us and sure. for everyone, if, if that's okay? <laughs> it would be a privilege. Well, one final question. Uh, you, you've been in ministry since the early 70s, uh, mostly in America, but you have spent some significant years here in Great Britain. As you've seen things changed, uh, things change, different changes and trends that you've observed during your working life, what things encourage you? And are there things that you think are we are in danger of losing, things that earlier generations cherished, which are underappreciated as we stand here in 2023? What's, what are your observations? Well, I thank you both, Matthew and Eric, for the privilege of being with you on this podcast today. I thank all our listeners for giving this their time. Uh, in the first decade of this century, 2000 to 2010 or so, I was rejoicing to see um, a resurgence um, a, a renaissance of gospel doctrine. I myself went through my own renewal. Um, I rediscovered at a deeper, thrilling personal level justification by faith alone, imputation, substitution, and so forth. And th that cluster of gospel-intense doctrines um, in the New Testament especially uh, came alive to me and to so many and uh, so, for example, the Gospel Coalition was formed out of that energy, sort of gospel rediscovery. And, and let's relish these treasures. Let's spread this. And that is really great to see. Um, and that has staying power if this other part is also in place. And I think this is in the, the second decade of this century, 2010 to 2020 or so, uh, in, in our country anyway, um, in my country, I should say, in the USA, I think I've seen a lot of relational breakdown. We are lousy at remaining friends long-term. One of my goals in life is to stop losing friends. Because it's not enough to be theologically serious. It's not enough to be expositionally robust. That's glorious, but not enough, because that very theology is there to create a captivating, beautiful community. As, as Schaefer said again, 
the beauty of human relationships. I think that area has, in that area, we have revealed weakness and failure and loss. And uh, I think we have, in in the USA, I'm concerned we have bungled an historic opportunity we actually had 10 and 12 years ago. Mm. So I'm sorry to say that, and and I don't want to be uh, discouraging to our friends here in Britain, uh, but that's my assessment of where we are. And I think we need to go back to the theology. In other words, gospel culture is not a smiley niceness poured as a glaze on the surface of robust, serious Christianity. Gospel culture is is serious Christianity. When the gospel doctrine is allowed to do what it wants to do and to exert the authority it legitimately has, what appears? Not just eloquent preachers, but beautiful communities Mm. called churches Mm. where really flawed people with a lot of regrets can come and live again. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I wish we could keep going, but this podcast has to stop sometime. So can I I ask you to pray for everyone listening? Okay, great. Father in heaven, we put ourselves in your hands and we pray, we are bold to pray for another great awakening in our time. Through the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the risen Christ and healthy, alive churches all over Britain, all over the USA, all over the world. For that we pray, to that we give ourselves. Thank you. In the holy name of Christ. Amen. 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 Dad, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And thank you to everyone joining us. I hope it was a blessing to you. 